What was the cost? What was the cost? Have to get punched in the face, yeah? I read up on, on, on Auntie Joshua's diet alone. Forget about his training regime. His diet was just masochistic. It was just wicked and cruel. The things that he couldn't have, the things that he had to do, the exercises he had to put himself through, day after day, week after week, month after month, if he wanted to get the reward, there was going to be a cost, a sacrifice, and a suffering. And I don't know, do you think he thought it was worth it in the end? Okay, next one, please. What's the reward? What's the reward? But that, that, that's very deep and meaningful, just a little bit less complicated than, than self-respect. Knowledge. Knowledge, yeah. Qualification. Because, of course, qualifications open doors of opportunity, or at least they're supposed to. Okay, what was the, what was the sacrifice, the cost? Getting up in the morning, and she's like, preach it. Preach it, Daddy. Who's got, who's, who's got exams coming up? Who's got exams coming up? Okay. Can I tell you how you don't get the reward? Sit at, uh, sit at home on Instagram. Go out and play footy in the park. Eat cake and enjoy the sun. Okay. Catherine did pretty well in her exams last year, didn't you, Catherine? Okay. What was the cost for you? Lots of revision. Okay. If you want the rewards, sacrifice, cost, suffering. Okay. Next. Okay. <laughs> this one. This is the cynical old me. <gasps> What's the reward, people? What's the reward? <laughs> What's the reward? Companionship. Companionship, marriage, lifelong partnership together. What's the sacrifice? Uh, you reckon? You reckon? What's the sacrifice, people? Clearly, we all should be married to Anthony. <laughs> I sometimes feel like I am. <laughs> okay, what's the, what's the sacrifice? Oh, yeah, you're having to think now, aren't you? Nobody wants to say it. Jane, if she was sitting in here and not in crash right now, she'd be telling you the sacrifice. Okay, the sacrifice is you, well, you learn to put yourself second, don't you? Okay, uh, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but there's a particular number of WhatsApp groups that we have, a, have around that um, there's a one particular member of this congregation who is sitting here now who's constantly putting up ideas. It's like, uh, games night, fellas. Um, uh, let's go go-karting. Um, let's go parachute jumping off Mount Everest. And all the other men in the room... Think, has Tony forgotten that he's a married man? I mean, sorry, has this, has this guy forgotten that he's a married man? Get a life! Protect your marriage! Mel, we're praying for you. You see, if you want the reward, I'd like to tell you life's going to be easy, people, but anything worth having is costly. And here today, I want to just flip that around. Because I want to tell you that the greatest reward that is available to you is incredibly costly. It required a massive suffering and sacrifice. But not yours. Somebody else paid the cost, made the sacrifice, and has won the reward for you. But don't think that won't change you if you embrace it into your life.
Peter, as we found, is utterly speechless. He is shocked by this. It has totally blown his world apart. Can you see it there in verse 31, the first verse of the reading that we had? Jesus had ju- Peter has just said, oh yeah, you are the, the king. You're the great king. You are the Christ. You are the one who is going to end all the brokenness, deal with the oppression, fix justice, set your people free, bring truth, bring reconciliation to the living God. It's taken him long enough, eight long chapters, and Peter has said, Jesus, you are the Christ. And everybody who's been reading the book along with him and looking at the story, and you and me as we've watched in over the last few weeks, have just gone, finally. And Jesus began to teach them. Look at this, verse, verse 31. He began to teach them, and this is the first. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, which is an Old Testament name that Jesus has taken upon himself, and it carries these two elements. The Son of Man is this great, high and lifted up, exalted one who has been given all authority by God, Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament, and yet is one who is connected and identified with people, and we find out in a minute that he is going to be one who, to be this authoritative, uh, lifted up one who will deliver his people, he's going to have to suffer. Then that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So the Apostle Peter's going, what's going on? This has got to be a mistake. I cannot compute of somebody who wins a victory for the people and leads them out in rejoicing and reunites them to God and yet has to suffer. And that immediately tells you something about the problem. You see, we were made by God and for God. We were created for his glory, but instead we've lived for ourselves and lived for our own glory. And that has ruined everything. That's what the Bible calls sin. And if you want to know why you have to shed a tear this week, follow it back far enough, sin. If you want to know why you've got uncertainty about the future, follow it back far enough or look far enough into the future, sin. And it is a massive problem. And the only thing that will overcome it is if the Messiah comes and bears the weight of it. He must suffer. And he must be rejected because that is what we deserve for our sin. We deserve to be rejected. We deserve, God is fair, he is a gentleman, he is honest. You reject me, that is your future. But Jesus says, I will take your rejection. He must be killed because the ultimate consequence, the wages of sin, is death, says the Bible. Jesus is saying, I I must die because I'm going to take the wages that you deserve so you don't have to pay them. And if the ultimate cost of sin is death, I must defeat death, for after three days, I must rise again. Of course, you and I, this is really hard for us to connect to, because we're so used to the cross, aren't we, Amanda? Have you got any jewellery on at all, darling, at the moment? No? Has anybody got a cross? Wearing a cross, aren't you? Okay, anybody ever had cross earrings? Okay, Stephen's looking at me going, why are you asking me that? Anybody have a little necklace with a cross round? Churches have a cross there? You know, some people even get a little collection of nice little crosses. There's a picture of one. It was used to kill people. You'd think it was a bit freaky 
if somebody, you walked into their house and they said, look what I've got, look what I've got. And it was a picture of one of these. An instrument of torture and death. We've put that up for long enough, take it off. So no wonder Peter's freaking out, going, what? How can a victory possibly be won through this kind of death? But it wasn't a mistake. Can you see what Jesus says? But, uh, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, not just Peter, he rebuked Peter. That word is the same word that is used to speak of when, D, uh, when Jesus drives away evil spirits and the forces of evil that are crushing people's lives. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Now, Peter struggles with this, but it wasn't a mistake. It was God's plan. In the Old Testament, God loves us so much that he would raise up his own son to pay the price so that we don't have to. Peter didn't like this idea. Could you imagine the shame that it was going to bring walking with Jesus as Jesus goes to a cross? You see, we love the idea of life being nice and easy, don't we? In fact, you spend and sacrifice oodles of time, energy, money in order to make life as easy for yourself as possible. What kind of idiot volunteers for suffering and hardship? Peter couldn't compute because he didn't understand how serious the human condition is. And there is a temptation for people like you and people like me to say that I like the idea of Jesus who puts everything right. But the idea of the fact he's got to go to a cross and pay for sin? I don't know whether I like that idea. It doesn't seem that important to me right now. What seems right most important to me right now is just that people like me and I have friends. Or I get to be able to follow the plans for my life that I would like to have. I don't want to invite rejection and suffering anywhere near me, and I don't like the idea that that's what I need Jesus to do for me. There's a way in which, ways in which we can all be a little bit like Peter. Can I tell you, there is nothing that kills people's faith and following of Jesus more than this Peter idea. Let's have a Jesus who doesn't have to suffer, because it means that I won't have to suffer either. Nothing kills our faith more than the temptation to pursue a path of respect and ease and possessions and our priorities. It's a constant temptation, isn't it? It's not just, it's not just you, it's me as well. We're, it's all of us in it together, isn't it? Is that we have a world that says, indulge, life is found in pursuing your own happiness. And here is Jesus looking at the disciples saying... No, for a reward to come, I've got to pursue cost and sacrifice and suffering for a greater end. Otherwise, there's no way to it. You see, if you follow your heart, it'll take you where your heart leads, and that will be death. There is a way that seems right to man, says the Bible, but ends in death. And Satan's plan is to get us to follow any other Jesus than this one. He loves to whisper. Have you noticed this? He loves to whisper in your, in, your, in your ear, Oh, have Jesus. And he doesn't mind you just living a little. Live for Jesus and have those extra things and, 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 and keep quiet so that people don't push you away and 
You know, don't don't step over that pain line of of letting people know you you live for Jesus, and you buy into that for a little bit, and sooner or later your heart just gets drawn in that direction. So is Peter the only one to respond to a Jesus who suffers like this? No, we all do. What a temptation! But Jesus is absolutely resolute. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. He wants you and me to have this reward. And he's not going to let the promise of ease, the promise of respect, uh, the promise of painlessness get in his way. He is going to go into hardship and hurt because he wants you to have the reward that only he can give you. Is that somebody we want to follow? Of course it is. He knows you don't deserve it. He knows you can't pay him back. He just wants you to have it. And he's prepared to suffer so you get it. Is that the kind of hero that our world needs? Of course it is. If we were Pentecostals, we'd all be shouting, Amen! About blinking time somebody stood up and did what was right. This is Jesus who is prepared to go and pay the cost the shocking cost, so that you and me can have the reward. And the pity thing here is Peter Peter doesn't even quite sense it yet. He doesn't know his need. If you're sitting there today and you're like, oh, I don't know. You're just like Peter, aren't you? I have to fight off the Peterness inside of me and say, no, Jesus, I need you to go to that cross for me. I need you to be my saviour. But then there's a turn, okay? Then there's a turn. And he looks and does something that he hasn't done before. Can we see this now in the next little bit? Because if he's going to say what it means for him to be the saviour, now we're going to see the shock of what it means to follow this Jesus. Somebody read for us, would you? Verse 34 down to 38. Who's going to read that for me? Who's going to read that out loud, nice and loud for me? Mark, go for it. There is no shame. He goes public. He turns to the crowd and says, now that people have begun to get who I am, now that I'm going to start unashamedly telling people that for me to be the Messiah means my suffering and death for your good, I'm now also going to start telling you about what it means to follow. So some of you are sitting here, and, uh, and I'm really glad you're here. You're looking in on the Christian faith. And I'm about to talk about following a saviour who suffers and him say, come along with me on the ride. And some of you are sitting there and going, are you nuts? What kind of freakish loser would choose hardship? Now, please don't hear me say, don't hear Jesus say that hardship is good or suffering or paying a cost is good for the sake of it. You know, there are some people who just seem to want to make their life miserable. And put themselves through. Oh, there was one dude who was reported in the third, fourth century, said he was following Jesus, and he just wanted to pay the cost for no reason whatsoever. 
And so what he did was he built a big pole that was about 40 feet high, higher than the top of the Noah's, uh, built a big pole, put a platform on the top and went and lived there. Idiot. And it became a bit of a spectacle and people would watch and send food up and down a rope for him. Idiot. No, 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 this isn't pointless or aimless suffering. No, no. Let's look at what it actually is. He says, if you want to be with me, says Jesus, let's get it straight. This is what I'm about. I'm about coming in and laying down my life so that other people have a future. I'm the only one who can do this for humanity, but you will join me in some way. You will follow after me. You will join in giving away your life into my hands for me to use it to bless other people. Do you see that? You will become a conduit. See it there? He began to teach them. Oops, wrong verse. Verse 33. But when Jesus turned up, verse 34, I'll say. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. If anyone, not just the keen ones, not just the ones who turn up and help. If you are a Christian, it means it's for anyone and it's for everyone. If anyone would come after me, and so if you're thinking about deciding to nail your colours to the masters following Jesus, which I obviously think you should, because Jesus says you should, if you're thinking of it, you need to know what's part of the deal. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Anyone want to volunteer for that? Let's think about what that actually means. You know, deny yourself. It doesn't mean that just randomly, like, you know, I think I should give up chocolate. It's not just random. No, 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 no. It means that the very centre and of the core of who you are, you hand the controls over to another. I found this really quite helpful as I was reading from a pastor earlier this week. He said, he says, I need a radical shift in the center of gravity of my heart. As a sinner, I want to set my own rules, pursue my own dreams, have what I want, and I have become skilled at justifying my desires to pursue what I want. I want my way, I know what it is, and I want it now. I'm the center. I live as if he doesn't exist I get angry when others are in my way. I'm angry when others have, sorry, I'm jealous when others have what I think I deserve. I crave, I lie, I cheat, it's me, me, me. And Jesus has come to perform a prison break for your soul. He wants you to surrender the reins, the centre of your hopes and aspirations, your desires, your pursuits over to him. He's not saying don't have that because it could be that you can have that. He says don't have that as something more important in your life than me. Don't have the approval of others as more important than me. Don't have the pursuit of things as more important than me. Ask your heart honest questions because you know you want to pursue your own self-interest. It's how we're wired and he wants to rescue us from ourselves. And it's public. Notice this. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Don't write your own story. Become in part of my story. He must deny himself and take up his cross. And everybody in the first century knew what that meant. That was a public declaration that you were on the way to be executed. The old you was as good as dead and you let everybody know it. So there is a public element 
It is possible to have a personal faith that will never be private. It mustn't be private. Jesus is saying, go public. In fact, by the end of this little section, he's talking about how publicly in the eyes of the world, are you ashamed of me and my words? Or in verse 37, he says, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel, it's a public thing that is happening here. Can I tell you that in a vast majority of history, what that's meant for Christians is it's meant that they were, because they publicly got known as belonging to Jesus, they would be excluded from the way in which society worked. Quite often they couldn't get jobs. Quite often they weren't allowed uh, to have uh, places of responsibility in community that basically meant they were poor. So in the vast majority of the world now and in the vast majority of the world in the past, to be a Christian, we're freaks of nature in the, in the West, to be a Christian has meant that you embrace being poor for following Jesus. For some people, it's even stronger than that. For some people, it's going to cost them their physical well-being, even their life. Nathan's really helpful, isn't he, at talking to us about uh, the, the, the charity Open Doors, which talks about the persecuted church and makes us aware of the need and gets us to pray and send money and send Bibles. But the conservative estimates are hanging pretty consistent that approximately 180,000 Christians are killed because they're known as being followers of Jesus every year. Uh, we, Christians are the most persecuted group anywhere there's all kinds of stink about the diversity policy in the uk about this group or that group or that group are terribly done down you want to know globally who has been and always will be the most persecuted it is christians by a country mile because they stand for jesus but of course for you and me it's going to be different things i think it's unlikely that people in this room might have to put their neck on the line to stand for Jesus. Might happen. It could be that the laws in our land about speaking up for Jesus change in such a way that just speaking about him in public can get you chucked in jail. That could be coming. I think I've been really bad at helping some of you young people learn that to follow Jesus is to choose to follow him no matter what it will cost you and you should expect it to cost you a lot. But for us here, it's so often the little things, isn't it? In a world that says, take every opportunity and claim your time and energy all for you, it means that you'll be constantly checking your heart and saying, do I have to do that? Is it just me doing what I want rather than serving Jesus? Is it that I could be helping reach more people with the gospel or give more money to the gospel or turn up at a prayer meeting rather than watching my telly or pursuing my hobby or changing my job? Should I... Will I put off doing some nice things because other people need love and care? Will I open my home even though I don't like a mess? Will I, will I put off having that new kitchen because the time and the money? Will I choose to live in a different area for Jesus? Many of us in this church family have done, haven't we? We've moved in to speak, which uh, you might not have noticed is not absolute top of the Merseyside living preference locations. But some have moved in so that they can tell people about Jesus. That's just what we do if we follow Jesus, because that's the example that he has set us. 
Dietrich Bronhofer is a famous pastor, a Lutheran pastor in Germany. He was greatly influential at trying to keep people who followed Jesus true to Jesus at times when the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler were trying to stamp out anybody who followed Jesus. He, in the end, up got, uh, end got locked up for being part of a plot against Hitler. He was killed just a couple of weeks before the end of the war, just murdered for Hitler's pleasure. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and this is what he said in there. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And I have to be honest, and I was looking at my own heart and thinking about this the other day. I wonder whether sometimes we don't find living for Jesus more difficult simply because we aren't taking seriously enough the challenge to stand up for him publicly in our streets, amongst our neighbours, amongst our work colleagues. I was so proud of Amy the other day. It was her birthday and she planned it on purpose to have a sleepover so that she could bring her friends to church on Good Friday morning so they could hear something of who Jesus was. And she knew that to do that was to risk their ridicule to risk them thinking that she's weird. And you teenagers know that there is nothing worse in school these days than to have somebody lay at your feet the accusation that you're weird, to make yourself vulnerable and to expose yourself to public ridicule. But she did it, and I'm so proud of her. And many of you have done that before, haven't you? I found it with a couple of guys I've been trying to witness to in the cycling club this week. It was so hard to get down to brass tacks and say, tell me what you think about Jesus. Can we talk? This is important. And I tried really gently, but I found myself edging on the side of be cautious in what I say so that I don't lose social capital with them and they don't think I'm a freak. Whereas I should have gone in there and thought, how can I lovingly do what's best for them? Really cautiously and respectfully, irrespective of the cost Because if I want them to have the reward, it could be that I have to pay the cost just a little bit. Because you don't get a reward without somebody somewhere suffering, paying the cost and sacrificing. And some of you are sitting there and saying, Steve, why would we possibly do this? Why on earth? Well, I'll tell you. And to tell you the answer, I need to confess to something. On the 2nd of February, 2012, sorry, 2013, I killed two people. I killed Nathan and Kaylee because I married them. Oh, people, you always thought that marriages were a happy occasion. Hearing it from me first, I'm telling you that every wedding is a funeral. Because there, what happens is two people who are radically committed to their own personal agenda say, I will put myself to death, my single person. Single Nathan died that day. And he was kicking and screaming all the way, and he's still kicking and screaming, isn't he, Kaylee? And so when he does, you slap him in that right Single Kaylee died that day. And, oh, it's been hard, and whenever she finds it hard, Nathan gets a slap. Because when you get married, things change. 
It's really funny, isn't it? Single Nathan, who just wants to come home and put Ipswich Town, long day, clunk down on the, t- wants to just watch Ipswich Town on the telly, go on Fantasy Football League, and then Kaylee comes in after he's had a hard day at work, sit down, and wants to talk. And so she asks a question, something like this. So how was work today? And Nathan does the simple thing. He does what men do, which is answer the question, because that's the friendly thing to do. Fine. But Nathan doesn't know that Kaylee doesn't just want to know how his day was with one word. She wants to engage and connect at a deeper level. And Ipswich has absolutely nothing to do with it. And so she presses a little bit more and selfish single Nathan doesn't know what to do and he doesn't understand because he's a man and he's confused. And he has to put himself to death and pay a great cost and turn off the telly. And poor Kaylee, she dreamed since she was a little kid of a really happy marriage and when she grew up she no doubt did that strange girl thing which was have lots of teddy bears on your bed and more, far too many pillows, more than you need and lots of green things with Batman on. And then, and then when she got to this married thing, something strange happened. She realised that he was a man and he smells and he makes a mess. And he doesn't like too many pillows in the bed. And it all started to go downhill from there. And he, he, he like snores and stuff and gets up at the wrong time and, and leaves a terrible, and it's horrible. And the cost and the sacrifice and the anguish every day. And for some reason, they're happily married. <laughs> And you ask them what the reward is. And the reward is two lives laid down together for a greater future and a wonderful reward. And somebody says, why do you you want to put your life in the hands of another? Well, number one, he's Jesus. He's the one who's got a hold of our soul. We see that in one of the verses. You know, what can somebody give in exchange for this? You get Jesus, you can't get anything else in the world that will secure your soul, but Jesus will. And he loves you. And he's for you. And he will never let you go. Or what can a a man give in exchange for a soul? Hold on, let's go back one verse. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Let me tell you about the words of somebody called Septim Severus. He is not a Harry Potter character. He lived in the third century and he was very minted. He had everything he could possibly want. And as he died, it was recorded that he said this. I have been everything and everything is nothing. And a little urn will contain the remains of the one for whom the world was too little. Did you get that? He chased everything. He had everything. And everything proved not enough. But he had Jesus. Jason and I were doing some decorating Janice's flat yesterday and we listened to a, the testimony, uh, the audio book of a guy called Lex Luger. Who's heard of Lex Luger? That's because you, Curtis possibly has. <laughs> Lex Luger was the big thing in wrestling in the late 80s all the way through the 90s. Uh, Massive, he played American football, massive, 270 pounds of pure muscle. He was known, his, his title was the, the total package, i.e. he had charisma, he had a tan, he had muscles that would 
beat Popeye. He would win in the stage. The women flocked to him. He had a crazy mad drug habit. His life fell apart. He ended up in prison. And a, a chaplain, and Jason liked this bit, called Pastor Steve. Pastor Steve came and visited him. He didn't, wasn't wanted, wasn't interested. And then a point came where he was prepared because the love that Pastor Steve had put in to pursuing him and caring for him got him to read about who Jesus was. He heard about how it's possible to build your life on the sand. And he thought, that's what I've been doing. I've had all these plans to take over the world and to have a business and to do this. And I've been looking for these highs and people around me have been hurt. And I've built my life on the sand. I need a solid rock to build my life upon. And he got down on his knees and he prayed with Pastor Steve and he gave his life to Jesus. And he wrote the book because he just kept on telling people about how he had got more than anything in this world could offer him. That's the reward. We follow the one who paid for the reward, who bought the reward, and he invites us to join in it and be a reward for others. And don't you dare, Christian, don't you dare get a victim mentality. Don't you dare have a victim mindset. Oh, I've sacrificed for Jesus. Yes, some of you have. Some of you have faced abuse and, and ridicule at school. Some of you have moved into a different area. Some of you have had to give up Coronation Street. Some of you have, have committed to give money and to love people and to put time and energy. But don't go, oh dear. Do you remember Peter in chapter 10? Well, we're going to get there in just a few weeks. We get to Peter and there's this issue of this rich young ruler. Who then can follow you? We've given up so much to follow you, Lord Jesus. And Jesus doesn't come alongside him with a sort of tissue and go, oh, there, there, I know it's tough, I know, but it'll be worth it in the end. No, he doesn't say that. What does he say? I'll tell you. It's written in the Bible. We can find out exactly what he says. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children. That's a lot, by the way. Those are the most personal and intimate relationships. And some of you have had friendships that have drifted away. For some of you, you will have friendships that will drift away. Some of you are, are just not connected to your nuclear family or your, your biological family in the way that you once were. Or the, the, there's a lot of that being put at risk. Jesus doesn't give you a tissue and go, there, there. No, no, he says, no, anyone who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or, next bit, fields for me. Fields were the source of wealth. They were your earning potential. They were your capital. Stuff. For me and the gospel, nobody who's done that will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. There's no victim mentality for those of us who are Christians. We are the richest of people because the more that we pile our lot in with Jesus the more we get set free from ourselves, set free from the love of things. Some of you have nailed your colours to the mast for Jesus and you've done that thing that you thought you wouldn't do. You've sort of put your cross down. It's easily done. Do you know, I've, I want to put my cross down every day. And as you put your cross down, it's not that you take up nothing. You've just taken up a few other things. Maybe it's the worries and concerns for work. Maybe it's the fact that you're going through an exam period. Maybe it's the fact that you've just found sticking it out and just doing the steady plodding of loving Jesus here in this estate, which doesn't get your name up in lights and where there's so much rejection, you found it hard and so 
you've just thrown yourself into too many DVD box sets or you've got your next little plan for how to improve the family or you've decided you want to move somewhere else. Those things in and of themselves aren't bad, but when they've taken the place of Jesus because the cross has been put down, Sometimes we do that when struggle or adversity comes our way. Maybe we have difficulty in the family. Maybe there's, there's demands or, or, or health problems. And we somehow think that these verses get put on the back burner. Those are the times when we say, no, no. What does it mean in my adversity to take up my cross and keep on serving Jesus? And isn't the wonderful thing here that to people like Peter who are prone to want to put the cross down, What does Jesus do to help them take the cross up? What did he do? He showed them his cross once again. You stay close to the cross. Your soul will be secure. You'll not be ashamed of Jesus. And you will be ready to receive him on that great day when he comes in his father's glory with all the holy ones and home has finally been reached. So for some of you today, you're sitting here and you're thinking about this and it's relatively new to you. Can I tell you that Jesus says you need him. You need his sacrifice. You need him to set you free from you. You need him to take control of the reins. And to those of us here in the room who've been following after Jesus, the resurrected Lord for a long time, but feel the pull to put down our cross because it's just hard in a world that says dive in and indulge. He says here, lift high the cross. Remember what I've done for you. Remember that I would take the cost, I would make the sacrifice, and I would endure the suffering, even to death, for you to keep that reward. Keep holding on. I'm holding on to you. I love you. I won't let you go. Cling on to me. Cling on to the cross. He's the center of everything. And that's what we're going to sing about now. Christ alone the cornerstone, the one we build off. All that he does, we're weak and he makes us strong. We're sinful and he makes us pure. We're clueless and he makes us wise. We're hopeless and he fills us with guarantees of hope. Let's stand and sing together.